0: Get ready to travel with all your senses in the hour ahead. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Jane and Michael Stern are back to get us in the mood to taste the regional food
1: of America. It's like edible folk art.
2: If you want a great barbecued pork sandwich, you go to Clarksdale, Mississippi, which happens to be home of the blues.
1: And the perfect side dish, that is the fried dill pickle.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We'll also open the phones today to hear about your favorite taste treats from your last trip. And later in the hour, two guides from Lisbon explain how the capital of Portugal offers visitors a freshly remodeled city on the move, where vestiges of its colonial heyday add a vibrancy to everyday life.
3: And as the sun sets, you get these gorgeous views uh, over the terracotta rooftops. They're just
0: magical. From outdoor cafes to flower-filled neighborhoods, exploring the back lanes of Lisbon comes with jaw-dropping views. From American road food to the flavors of Lisbon, it's all just ahead... On Travel with Rick Steves. My taste buds absolutely love to travel. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're finding out how the flavors of its former colonies make Lisbon a particularly tasty multicultural capital of Europe. And we'll find out what kinds of savory memories listeners have from their vacations. Let's start with our friends Jane and Michael Stern. They're the authors of Road Food. And they're the champions of finding diners and barbecue joints where you enjoy the everyday regional food specialties right here in the United States, the kind of food that makes you want to hit the road for more. Integral to appreciating cultures all over the world is, of course, eating... You may debate this, but it's clear to me that a very important part of American cuisine is simply road food. It's folk art. didn't have any fancy chef inventing it. This is traditional food steeped in the ethnicity of America, a melting pot country with a melting pot cuisine, and it's cheap. You don't need a reservation. You don't need to dress up, but it does help to have a little guidance. Jane and Michael Stern have joined us today. They're the authors of the classic Road Food, a 700-page collection of all the greatest places to eat as you're driving around the United States. The other book is called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Hi, Rick. I'm just going to throw some exciting little dishes at you here that I learned about in your 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late book, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on them. You guys write up food like uh, a lot of us write up museums. You just do it with a passion and with a, with a respect, and I, I just am inspired by that. And uh, Tell me about clam chowder.
2: How much time do you have?
1: (laughs) Do you mean East Coast, (laughs) West Coast, or Southern? And
2: and when you talk about East Coast, do you mean Rhode Island chowder, Northern New England chowder, or Southern New England chowder? There are so many varieties. The fundamental varieties in the East, anyway, are Manhattan-style, which... Which detractors say is merely vegetable soup with clams thrown in it. It's kind of a reddish stuff. Then there's New England style, which can be milky or creamy or buttery. The very best of it is served at the main diner in Wells, Maine. It's, it's very buttery and rich, but not heavy. And it's loaded with mm.
1: Excuse me, but you're leaving out the really best chowder, Rhode Island Okay, so if you're
0: going to have chowder in one state, I know this is dangerous to say because there's great chowder all over the place, but what single state would you be sure to have chowder on your list?
1: Rhode Island. Maine. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and moving along. Oregon. (laughs) While
2: you're
0: in Rhode Island, would you want to try some Johnny Cakes?
2: Of course you would, but then again, the question is, do you want the thin Johnny Cakes or the thick Johnny Cakes? On one side of Narragansett Bay, you get them thick. The other side, they're as thin as lace. And what you must know about Johnny Cakes is that state law proclaims they may only be made from cornmeal made from flint corn. And when when written down, you must not put an H in the name. It's J-O-N-N-Y-C-A-K-E. So
0: this is a state law. They're serious about their Johnny Cakes.
2: Yes. Wow. And they're good. I and mean, they're you will
1: you will go to Johnny Cake jail if you slip <laughs> up. So watch your step.
2: And the great thing about Johnny Cakes is that you can have them for breakfast in lieu of pancakes or as a side
0: dish with any meal. Nice. Now take me north up to Maine and uh, let's check out the Whoopi Pie.
2: Okay. Whoopi Pie, it's – imagine like a giant squishy Oreo cookie. By squishy, I mean instead of cookie, it's sort of like devil's food cake.
1: And you know, it's, I always thought ringdings kind of got their – impetus from whoopie pies because it's kind of like squishy chocolate cake with a layer of creme creme not, not c-r-e-m-e, creme. um right. yeah it's you know i think whoopie pies really got popular during world war ii when there were not a lot of sugar and not a lot of butter because it's kind of like you know the, the mock frostings that you see in World War Two books. And
2: a great whoopie pie, in my opinion, is defined by the fact that when you pick it up in your fingers, it is impossible not to get chocolate stuck on your fingers because it's that moist.
0: Something else that's kind of squishy and tasty, banana pudding down in the heart of Dixie. Oh.
1: Or as
2: Elvis used to call it, nanner pudding. That was El, one of Elvis's favorite desserts. <laughs> is that desserts. right? Nanner yeah. pudding. Yes, he liked to talk baby talk, you know.
1: And eat baby food. And eat
2: baby food. And and banana pudding is to me one of the most one of the defining comfort food it's dishes a, of the South.
1: It's a banana pudding with real slices of banana in it, vanilla wafers, also called Nilla wafers, mm-hmm. and whipped cream on and the whipped top. And whipped cream, and of course, or the, meringue. So
0: Actually, the Nilla meringue. wafer is a is a required part of the recipe.
1: Absol-
4: Absol- it is essential. It and what's it.
0: great is, I mean... Baby food. Ver- I love those Nilla wafers. That takes me back <laughs> a
4: decade. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Hey, while we're down there, a barbecued pork sandwich down in the Mississippi Delta. If you want
2: a great barbecued pork sandwich, you go to Clarksdale, Mississippi, which happens to be home of the blues. I mean, where Robert Johnson allegedly sold his soul to become master of the guitar. But it's also home of Abe's, a restaurant that makes a wicked Big Abe barbecue sandwich. It's two layers of pulled pork with coleslaw, cheese, and a giant sesame bun. It's pork heaven.
1: And the perfect side dish was invented at the Hollywood Cafe in Hollywood, Mississippi, which is basically just like a crossroads. And that is the fried dill pickle
0: okay, so you got a fried dough pickle with your barbecued pork sandwich now, throughout the South, biscuits are a big deal, and I'm from the Northwest, and I don't even get biscuits. Tell me about biscuits.
2: Well, you know, we've gotten a lot of great recipes for biscuits from southern cooks, and the recipes are usually two or three ingredients and like a short paragraph, you know, combine and mix and then bake. We can't do it. it's all in the in the cook's touch. A great biscuit. It's so light, you almost want to put a weight on it to keep it from floating off the plate. What was
1: that place in North Carolina that you could see, see her making the biscuits and they had the country ham between them? <laughs> <I> <laughs> Getting a blank look.
0: <laughs> People are just passionate about their biscuits and it's got to be a quality biscuit and that's, that's something that is a forte of the South then.
2: Biscuits are a forte of the South and there are generally two kinds. There are the kinds that are cut out with, a, say, a glass and then there's the cat head biscuit. Which is so named because it's as big as a cat's head and also kind of all knobby and gnarled. I think a, they're called drop smooth, biscuits. You know, also known as the drop.
0: Something fundamentally good. Road food appreciation is probably go with the local specialties. I mean, if you really, uh, if you go with what's what's a specialty of a state, you're going to be having a better experience.
1: That's exactly true, Rick. I mean, sometimes we get readers uh, write to us and they say. We found the best Cajun restaurant up in northern Montana. Right. And, you know, <laughs> It yeah. might be fine. It might but be great, but, but that's, the anomaly is not what we're looking for. Well, I want North.
2: huckleberries in northern
0: Montana. No, I want testicles in northern Montana.
1: <laughs>
0: well, stay away festival. from me. That's let's I talk I about – I mean, testicles. listen to these great names. Prairie oysters, barnyard jewels, cowboy caviar, tender groin, Rocky Mountain oysters, and lamb fries. Can you actually – where, where do people find cow testicles served as delicacies? Well, do you know
1: about the testicle festival? It's Tell in me. Montana, in Montana. It? It's yeah. a yearly event. And yeah.
0: Beef country
1: and primarily. And rooster fries. No rooster place fries. for cows, yeah. man. Many, many things have testicles beside a cow, and you can eat them.
0: <laughs> what kind of testicles do people eat in American folk cuisine?
1: They're generally
2: fried. I mean, they're sliced But into, ca- are they into cow into testicles? Cow is the most prominent testicle you'll find out with. Calf
1: is the— Calf, because well, you don't
0: want calf. an old bull.
2: No, you don't want bull testicles. You, you want, want a small testicle. Nice, fresh calf testicle. And then they're
1: called calf fries.
2: Calf fries. And, you know, that used to be the great reward that cowboys would give themselves after a day of branding and castrating as a big pan full of testicles.
0: little cowboy caviar. Now, is this actually served? Is this, you'll find this in, in, in diners around? Uh... Oh,
2: throughout, throughout the West. I mean, uh, one of the, our favorite places is the Cattleman's Restaurant in the stockyards of Oklahoma City. They not only serve Rocky Mountain oysters for an hors d'oeuvre, they also make a wonderful steak soup that includes testicles.
0: And what, does, what do these taste like?
1: Foie gras, foie
0: gras. So kind of, yeah, they're kind of like organ,
2: like sort of Liver-y. sweet breads, sweet or breads like liver. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so if you want the uh, the fancy French kind of liver kind of food in America, you go to Cow Country and you have your uh, barnyard jewels, your
2: <laughs> your, your tender growing.
0: <laughs> okay, moving uh, beyond that topic, let's go back to the Deep South. You want some lemon ice box pie?
2: Mm. There is nothing more soothing after a meal of hot, spicy barbecue or hot, spicy fried chicken than cool lemon icebox pie. It's a perfect balance between that kind of tart citrus lemon flavor and the creaminess of the curd. That diner
1: Mm. in Atlanta had the best lemon icebox pie I Mm. ever tasted. The problem is they only made three of them, and it sold out instantly. Um, the you, silver skillet. The silver skillet oh, okay. in Atlanta, nice. Georgia. You you kind of get a sense of how um, archaic that recipe is because who has an icebox anymore? Yeah. I mean, now they'd be called a lemon sub-zero yeah. pie.
0: <laughs> well, that's the fun thing that a lot of these dishes, I'm sure, go back w- way, way back, and they, they survive still. When you go to a soul food restaurant, uh, chicken and waffles, that's a treat.
2: That's right. And there are still a lot of restaurants that serve it, especially out west. We just had some great chicken and waffles at a restaurant called Lolo's Chicken and Waffles in Phoenix, Arizona.
0: All right. And in in Southern California, there's some great uh, chicken and waffle places. Roscoe's,
2: House of Chicken and Waffles in Los Angeles.
0: yes. Talk about Frito Pie, New Mexico. Well,
2: New Mexico and... Dallas, Texas, both claim to have invented it. We won't get in the middle of that squabble. But with Frito is it's a great combination of chili, the local chili, on top of Fritos. And the trick is to have just enough chili and just enough Fritos positioned just so in the dish so that some of those Fritos turn nice and soft and kind of become almost like a meal, whereas the ones at the edge retain their crispness. And you're
1: ideally supposed to serve it in the individual Frito bag, just pour the chili in there and put the shredded cheese on the top of it. Mm. uh, Santa Fe claims that Frito pie was invented at the Woolworths on the square in Santa <laughs> Fe. And them's fighting words if you, if you say no, it's ah, from Texas.
0: Local pride showing itself in folk culture called edible road food. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jane and Michael Stern. They're the authors of Road Food. Their website is roadfood.com, the Bible of uh, eating on the, on the road in the United States. And they've got another book called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Michael, a lot of us do our road tripping in the summer, and it can be hot in different parts of the United States. What's your last tip on just keeping cool as you enjoy Road Food USA?
2: If you happen to be anywhere in or around the Midwest, look for custard. They take that very seriously. They make it fresh.
1: Explain custard. It's not It's not just soft custard. serve ice
2: cream. I mean, it's a whole other brand of food. It's very rich and yet not heavy. It's the perfect summertime refresher.
1: And they also have concretes. What's a concrete? A concrete is the soft-serve ice cream that's so thick that when you turn the cup upside down, Ah. it doesn't fall out.
0: Yeah, they've got famous ice cream in in Turkey where you have to cut it with a knife. (gasps) Really? Yeah, so it's probably a a Turkish concrete. (laughs) The whole world is full of good food, and we've been focusing on folk culture that's edible right here in the United States. We've been talking with Jane and Michael Stern, author of Road Food, their website is roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, continued happy eating, and thanks as always for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick.
0: Bye,
5: Rick.
0: Two travel guides from Lisbon will join us in just a bit to tell us what puts the tang into the Portuguese capital. And since we've got food in our minds, let's take your calls next at 877 333 Rick to tell us about how food plays a part in your travel memories. Tell us where in the world you'd go back just for the taste of it. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Uh,
5: my name is Peter Pulsman. I'm from uh, Hungary. Um, do you know that we have got one of the longest words in the whole world? We always brag about that word. What uh, is it? I'm dying to hear. Uh, the word is. What does it mean? <laughs> Well, personally, I'm not too convinced that the whole thing makes sense, but it's one word, it's 42 letters, and the root word is sent, only five letters, and there's one prefix and about uh, 16 suffixes on it. This is what makes Hungarian so difficult for, for foreigners. But pizid, pizid is not too difficult, is it? All right.
0: We're checking in with you, our listeners, right now at eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five to see what kind of food stands out from your travels. That's 877-333-RICK. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Mary's on the line from Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Mary, thanks for your call.
6: Well, thank you. I'm I'm always thrilled to talk with you.
0: Thanks. And uh, do you enjoy eating when you're far away from home?
6: I enjoy eating when I'm near home.
0: (laughs) Good idea. And what are some of your fun food memories when you're far from home?
6: Well, um, I lived in the Philippines for a while, and much to some of my friends' horror, I would eat the street food. And the way I figured it, they, they've been eating it all their lives, and they're fine. They say, well, what are you eating? I go, I don't know. It's meat on a stick. <laughs>
0: you know, street food, a lot of people, you know, they're going to be very careful about not picking up some sort of uh, food that, that disagrees with their stomach. But I'll tell you, if you're missing the street food anywhere, you're missing a good part of the culture, aren't you?
6: Oh, yes, I, I thoroughly agree.
0: And what are some of your best memories of street food in the Philippines?
6: Well, they would have the just the different meats and with the different seasonings, and okay. um, they just smelled good. They just made your mouth water. And then they'd also, they would make these little breads. I don't even remember what they were called, but they were warm, and they were like donut holes, but oh. they were bread, and you could just pop them in your mouth, and they were just, they were great. And then when we lived in Europe, of course, there's nothing better than a brat stand.
0: Oh, yeah. I've had so much fun in Pacific Rim countries uh, just enjoying food that, I'm not even sure what it is, but everybody's eating it. It's cheap, it's hot, it's right now, it's it's delightful. If
6: it smells good (laughs) and it looks good, try it. Try it.
0: You know, another thing, there's a lot of these wonderful festivals, a lot of religious festivals in countries all over Asia. I'll never forget being in Sri Lanka, and uh, every day somewhere I was stumbling into some religious festival, and always outside of the temple, there's people with little cookers uh, sitting cross-legged on the, on the ground cooking up stuff and selling it. It was just a festival of food. And uh, I don't remember what I was eating, but I do remember it was a delight.
6: And I think you miss a lot of the local culture if you don't try That's it. Right.
0: That's right. All right. Mary, thanks for your thoughts. Thank you. Happy travels. You too. And Marcelina's on the phone in Syracuse, New York. Marcelina, thanks for your call
7: thanks, I'm excited to talk to you,
0: yeah, do you like eating far away from home? <laughs>
7: yeah, yeah, um, and like the previous caller, I like eating at home too.
0: <laughs> Good for you. What's some tip that you've had in your travels that you'd like to share?
7: Well, um, last February, my husband and I went to Puerto Morelos, which is about thirty minutes south of Cancun in Mexico. And our first day there, we just kind of were walking around the village and we saw this little place called Lancheria Mimi, and we went inside. And uh, we got about four tacos and a Coke and a water for like about $3.50. It was awesome.
0: (laughs) Wow. This is Luncheria Mimi, like Mimi's place?
7: Yeah, like Mimi, I guess would be the name. Yeah, the woman's name, Luncheria Mimi.
0: And it was sort of an indoor-outdoor kind of place?
7: Um, It was indoor. It was very small inside. I want to say maybe like maybe four or five tables. That's it. You know, with like plastic tablecloths on top, like very, very basic, uh-huh. and um, the people like they would cook the food right in front of you. I think we had chicken tacos and they had um, like red onions and then they had pico de gallo and salsa on the side mm. and it came with rice and everything mm. for like $3. It was mm. great.
0: I love eating in a country where you don't need to even look at the price. You just order whatever you like and <laughs> if you didn't like that, you don't finish it and you order something else and the uh, the bill amounts to you know what you'd spend for a, just an appetizer here.
7: Exactly, yeah. Our resort... Um you could have had an all inclusive they had some um restaurants at our resort but my husband and I we you know wanted to try local food, and so we got out there and
0: that 's what we did well you know that 's a very important point. You were just a, a little bit outside of Cancun, and of course, most of the hotels would rather you stay right there and, and eat on in their restaurants and yeah. that 's understandable, but you owe it to yourself and your and your family to to make a point to enjoy the resort hotels if you want to, but get out there and uh, eat with the locals and sometimes that means getting off of the resort strip and a few blocks inland where the local people will be eating, and that's where you'll find more authentic food, better food in a lot of cases, and and for about a quarter the price.
7: Oh, exactly. It was delicious.
0: <laughs> All right. And when you go to Mexico, do you enjoy the, they've got those wonderful juice bars?
7: Well, actually, there was another place there in Puerto Marlos we ate at, and the name of the place is called Juicy Rosie's Juice Bar. And um, I had chilequiles there one morning for breakfast, and they were just like out of this world. <laughs> it was like our last day of vacation, and I was really sad that, I discovered them on our last day, you know, and I didn't get to eat them for breakfast every day.
6: Oh,
0: I miss the juice bars. Juicy who's yeah. juice bar? Juicy Rose's juice bar? <laughs> that sounds juicy, good. Juicy, yep. Yep,
7: Juicy Roses. <laughs> All
0: right. Marcelina, thanks for your call. Thank you. And happy travels. Sam emailed us from San Diego, and Sam writes, uh, politely ask uh, the hotel receptionist for a restaurant recommendation, but be sure to specify exactly what you want. Say you want a restaurant where there be no tourists Uh, which is charming, great food, and moderate in price, a place where you eat and perhaps uh, one where you've never recommended to a tourist. Uh, Sam, that's a great idea. In fact, that's what I ask when I'm doing my research is I talk to the people in the hotel and I don't say, where's a good place for a tourist to have lunch? I say, where do you go on a lunch break? Uh, I find that, you know, there's workers all over Europe, all over the world that go out for lunch, and uh, they know the good places. I was just in the countryside of England last year noticing how expensive it is, and I thought, where do all these uh, local professionals go on their lunch hour? And I would look around, and the British are really into sandwiches, and some sandwich shops have a line of people in suits waiting for the right sandwich, and other places are, are just uh, have a few sorry tourists in them. Boy, I want to wait in line with the local professionals at lunch for the right sandwich. It makes a huge difference. Uh, So, Sam, that's a very, very good tip. And Grace is on the phone in Raritan, New Jersey. Grace, thanks for your call.
8: Hi, Rick. Hi. It's Raritan, Raritan, New Jersey.
0: Raritan. I'll get that right. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Raritan, (laughs) New Jersey. And what is there to see and do in Raritan?
8: Um, I must say not too much, but we do have a wonderful park, Duke Island Park that I take my dogs to. It, it's a very uh, relaxed community, but we're more oh. like a of community. We're outside of uh, New York City metropolitan area, okay. so most of us either work for the pharmaceutical companies around here or commute to New York City.
1: Oh,
0: okay. Now, there's a fascinating little museum in Amsterdam, believe it or not, dedicated to phosphorus, everything that glows in the dark. And when they oh. think of... New Jersey, they think that's the place where there's the most phosphorus in the United States. They love New Jersey really? because of phosphorus. I, Have you ever heard of that as a New Jerseyite?
8: I actually am a transplant from San Francisco, California. Okay. So I'm fairly new in New Jersey, but surprisingly, I'm really enjoying this place. A lot of people ask me, why did you move? <laughs> but I appreciate the four seasons here. It's is
0: Isn't it's that bad. good? From California to New Jersey and happy about it. <laughs> well,
8: okay. you have to make the best of everything, right? <laughs> That's a
0: good attitude. Okay, speaking of the yeah. best of everything, tell us some uh, some uh, travel advice. What is a fun experience you'd like to share?
8: Uh, m- one of my best experiences was traveling with my sisters. I think your companions sometimes make a big difference, and my two sisters and I have not traveled together since we were young. So um, two years ago was our first chance to travel together. Well, we're Chinese, ethnicity. Uh-huh. So we went to China, where our parents grew up, uh, specifically in Shanghai.
1: Mm-hmm.
8: Of course, like everyone else, we did a lot of uh, shopping, too. Um, so one day we were in this uh, shopping mall called Raffle City in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. It's right by the uh, People's Square, the pedestrian shopping mall. Hmm. So it's a kind of an upscale place, and it's all great, let's go in. And By then we were pretty tired, and in Shanghai... Really interesting. All these shopping malls has a big food court. So we thought, okay, let's look for a food court so we could get something to drink and cool off. And the the food court on the sixth floor um, had this little food stand, and they were selling something that we always loved when we were little, and that was called bao bing, which is the shaved ice in uh, American terms. Hmm. And When we saw the stand, we we were... so happy, thrilled. And there were probably around 50 different kinds of toppings you can have. Wow. That, you know, the toppings are fresh fruits, dry fruits, different kinds of beans, red beans, black beans, green beans, yellow beans, as well as different kinds of jellos. So you get to pick maybe like 10 toppings. And on top of that, they put the condensed milk. So here's this shaved ice. is about probably a foot and a half When they gave it to us, we said, oh, my goodness. We were so glad we only ordered one. Uh And so the three of us shared this big shaved ice, and we ate every single bit of it. There was not even a drop left at the bottom of this big plate.
0: My goodness. It was
8: so good. (laughs) So we call it shaved ice,
0: and they call it bao bing.
8: Bao bing, yes. Bao bing, yep.
0: So you go to Shanghai, you ask for bao bing, you're going to get a a very nice travel memory.
8: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs>
0: this is what you had when you were a child in the United States, or did you grow up in China?
8: I grew up in Taiwan, okay. and that's our summer treat in the summer. Ah. Um, usually, you know, when we go outside or go to a movie or something in the summer, yeah. we, the parents bring you to have a bao bing. That's your treat.
0: Can you get a good baobing bing in America?
8: I have to say I did. I actually found it since I moved to the East Coast in New York in the... Flushing area in New York City, okay. Queens, in the Queensboro. It's not as good as the one in Shanghai, though, I have to say. But it was actually um, meet my needs, you know, when, when <laughs> I had <have> the...
0: <laughs> it met your needs. Well, that's very important. <laughs> but but uh, your travel dreams now will have you going back to Shanghai, specifically the Raffles Shopping Mall. You go up to the sixth floor, and you're going to ask yes. for Bao Bing. yes. Now, when you went to Shanghai, I was there a little while ago, and it was just, they were building so fast. It was a forest of skyscrapers, and they were building literally the cubic footage of a skyscraper a day in the city. They were just Mm -hmm. popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. Do you get a feeling Mm -hmm. that the economy is still just really jamming in, in Shanghai?
8: I think so. It's prosperous. But did you see how they tear down the building? Did you see that? No. It's incredible. To me, that was the most amazing thing. The construction workers... They'll be wearing the um western suits, you know, like a business jacket type. Yeah. And taking down the old buildings one brick at a time and recycle them. Really? So nothing goes to waste. So
0: yeah. They're tearing down um small old buildings or other or skyscrapers?
8: Even big skyscraper. I saw them tore down, you know, a maybe like a Wow story buildings. They don't implode them or explode, you know, or I don't know
0: how you call them. Implode, yeah. I would think we yeah. would just kind of blow it up, but they need that building material so they literally have people carrying it down one brick at a time.
8: I'm not sure if that was the purpose, but I also right. felt in my mind, my guess was this is how they keep people
7: employed.
0: Yeah. In a lot of countries, they can have that cheap labor sort of uh That kind of labor, factor. yeah. And, you know, yeah. um, all they got to do is give them a good bao bing at the end of the day and they'll come back to work tomorrow.
8: Right, and most of them live on the construction sites. You will see big trailers or temporary structures oh, yeah. that workers
9: live in.
0: China's got a what over a billion people, and probably eighty percent of them are willing to work for bottom wage. So that's a big yeah. workforce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, thanks for sharing your uh, your enthusiasm for shaved ice.
8: Well, I hope people get to try it.
0: I hope so and too. You too. Especially. Okay. I'll I'll put that on my list, Grace.
8: Okay, I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Our next stop is a city that's sort of a flavorful, culinary, and cultural stew. And it's too often overlooked by travelers who are eager for something authentic and different. Perhaps one of the most underrated capitals in Europe is Lisbon. On the far southwest of Europe, with its hills and its trolleys and its rough edges. It's a city that enchants. And today I'm joined by two residents of Lisbon who are also tour guides and friends of mine who helped me over the years with tour guiding and guidebook research, Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright. Cristina and Roberto, thanks for joining me. Thank Thank you. you. Now, Robert, you are moving to Lisbon. You've vacationed there and worked there for years, but you're moving from Argentina to Lisbon. Why would you leave uh, beautiful Buenos Aires and uh, settle in Lisbon?
3: There's a lot of uh, benefits that Lisbon has that most people don't even know about. Uh, when they go to see the city for the first time, they're really impressed by the way it's laid out, the hills. It's about on seven hills, and you get great views from the tops of every one of those. And as the sun sets, you get these gorgeous views that uh, over the terracotta rooftops uh, that really they're
0: just magical. Now, it's drenched in history. It's got some rough edges because it's not one of the wealthiest parts of Europe, and it's not very homogenous culturally, is it?
3: No, there's a lot of people from uh, everywhere, especially the ex-colonies of Portugal, so you can actually walk down the streets and see people from all parts of the world, and I think that's fantastic. And That way, I don't stand out too much because even though I'm American... People would accept me because I am one of the many foreign immigrants that are
0: in Portugal. So Lisbon is quite cosmopolitan, thanks to the fact that it was an imperial power, and then it lost its empire, and a lot of those people moved to the capital. Mm-hmm. Cristina, when you're in Lisbon and you want to celebrate your colonial heritage, what, do you, what joy do you find in your former colonies?
4: Uh, very much i'm proud I, I mean in this globalization world though it's important that uh, people more or less kept their cultures kept their uh, nationalities their colors and uh, when you end up like a little a little square in rossi square you just go behind that square you find a corner that is so bright, full with colors, with the with the different costumes of Guinea, and they gather there. There is a place of gathering after, and they sell the products of home: banana bread, that is a kind of banana, and all kind of spices that they need for their everyday life. And that is in the main center of city.
0: So, for a little context, of course, uh, five hundred years ago, Vasco da Gama and Magellan sailed out and made Portugal a real power. Of course, in a good European style, Portugal capitalizes that and establishes an empire. Angola, Guinea, um, uh, Macau, Mozambique, Mozambique and uh, all of those were part of your empire until just uh, a generation ago. And in, yes. in the middle 1800s, you lost yes. Brazil. But today, you've got an economic uh, reality like the United States, tough times, more unemployment. What is the downside of having uh, all of these immigrants in your capital city?
4: Uh, let's say that's because of the variety of the people, not all ex-colonies are kind of treated the same or seen the same way. For instance, the, exactly the Brazilians they were the very first ones to get their independence, they are, though, Portuguese, I mean, ex-colonies, but they were independent in the eighteen hundred. So nowadays, we actually, Angola and people from Africa, they are like one of us.
0: And when you go on vacation... Do Portuguese people tend to go to Brazil, where they speak the yes, of course that's yes the, that's yes just yes, straight across that isn't is it?
4: straight across, and green Cape
0: now Roberto, Lisbon was a very important city, arguably one of the richest and most powerful cities in Europe centuries ago seventeen fifty five terrible thing happens
3: A huge earthquake devastates the city, and it's not just an earthquake. The earthquake is followed by uh, fires in churches because it's on November first. It's all Saints' Day. People are in churches, they're praying. the earthquake hits. The candles in the churches, catch anything wooden in the churches on fire, and then the earthquake is centered offshore, actually, which creates a tsunami that comes in and puts out the fire, but it wipes out the rest of the town.
0: So a good portion of the population
3: dies. Uh, a huge number of people died. The city was basically leveled.
0: So today, when you go to Lisbon, you see a city that was rebuilt in a, sort of a military, austere, um, uh, a, a more sort Baroque of plan.
3: style, because it was rebuilt in 1755, and a lot of it is a very Baroque style for the city center. Yes,
0: but you have a, a grid plan,
3: right? Uh, they wanted order because wanted before order. it was the Jewish quarter, and it was all a big maze of streets, and so they wanted a little bit of order in the 1700s. <laughs>
6: More with
0: Lisbon-born Cristina Duarte and Robert Wright, one of Lisbon's newest residents. We're talking about the essence of their colorful city. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Two guides from Lisbon continue with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to point out the highlights of the Portuguese capital. We're joined by native-born Cristina Duarte and by American Robert Wright. Robert's in the process of moving to Lisbon after living several years in Buenos Aires. So you mentioned the city's got seven hills. Most of the city was destroyed in 1755 with this earthquake and the tsunami, and you have a few areas that survive that give it that pre-1755 sort of higgly-piggly character... Christina, where would you go alfama,
4: for that? Alfama def- Alhama, most definitely. Is, uh, as a matter of fact, it is the hill, the oldest hill in Lisbon where the city started from. It is the highest, so is where the castle is settled, and also is the hill that goes towards the river, so is the best well located with, uh, with, uh, with the light. So, so you got uh, the castle capping the exactly. hill. And then you got the, it goes back All to Visigothic times. Labyrinthic, or little streets. Very uh, characteristic where the very fishermen Very characteristic. Live. Um, and still nowadays, though this uh, old destruction of the city was like 80%, So in Alfama, most definitely a great percentage of what it was hold, it was there.
0: Now, even today, you've got that wonderful rough edge and unpredictability and and fragrance of the Alfama, the old sailor's quarter, the old fisherman's quarter. Robert, if you're going to take a traveler through the Alfama... What's your ideal? What what experience are they going to have? And
3: I think the best thing is to start at the top with the castle and work your way down to where the old port was. And so as you wind down through those twisty and narrow streets, you find alleyways where women are selling fish out on this. And you can definitely, it's not just seeing it, you smell it as well <laughs> as you walk down. <laughs>
0: And there's still public baths, I understand.
3: There's a few public baths. There's also large public laundries. Actually. Now, why would you have a
0: public bath and a public laundry? Uh,
3: because of the old nature of the hill, because those uh, homes were from pre-1755.
0: So these homes are so small and humble that they might not even have indoor a, a bath. Plumbing, indoor, indoor plumbing. Or, mm-hmm. I, I understand even in the last generation, in the morning, you'd see people going through the streets in their bathrobes and slippers going yes. to the bath. Mm-hmm. Yes. Going to take a shower? You're going to have to leave your home? Put on your robe?
4: And not in Alfama only. There are pretty much other neighborhoods in Lisbon where you can see that with a toothbrush in there. Is that right? Still, yes, you still, know where they're going still. if you see a toothbrush. Exactly. <laughs> even today, you find even people today, walking even, through the streets yes, in the morning with a yes, toothbrush in yes. their head. Yes, I mean not. I mean, it's not on those touristical neighborhoods. No. And definitely not fancy. <laughs> but it can happen. Yes. One of my favorite things about Lisbon
0: is the is the black and white mosaic sidewalks. Yes. Tell me about that. It's unique in Europe.
4: It's pretty. unique because you see pretty much the sidewalks. It was a, a way of a paving a street. The streets were made out of earth and it would become very swampy with, uh, with the humidity and the water coming from the sky <laughs> but also from the, the houses. So <laughs>
0: the humidity coming from the houses? That sounds <laughs> yeah. kind of like a smelly humidity to you.
4: <laughs> I mean, the Middle Ages were like that. They were smelly, so they I would, believe. they would put this stone
0: mosaic in there exactly. to so keep the your first, feet away from yes, the muck.
4: Exactly. So on the very first moment, it was the main streets, mm-hmm. so where the trolleys with the cars and the, the donkeys will pass. Everything became much more sophisticated after the earthquake because they were planning into doing a very organized city and do not repeat the mistakes of the past. So little by little, not only in the main street, but some other that were growing with a new city after the earthquake grow like that. Limestone is white. And uh, basalt is black.
0: Okay, so, and that heritage, while practical at the time, is yes. kept today just because. It's of... kept
3: today, and, and actually, uh, you can usually, if you find some street work going on in Lisbon while you're there, uh, and people are replacing this, it's all done by hand today. And this is labor-intensive work, and you see them out there because the base that they put the stone on is actually sand, and you'll see them with these big templates cut out of cardboard for all the designs. And then they will cut the stones in order to fit the template, and you see them level it off with a little level, like a little chalk level, and make sure that it's okay for everyone to walk on.
0: That's incredible. a beautiful dimension
3: and of it is a, a mun- city.
4: The, the, it is the municipality of Lisbon that runs the school for learning the art of it. I mean, it's not an open school. It's for the people that work to the municipality of, of Lisbon, and they are the calceteiros. Cal- That's the name of
0: these sidewalks, yeah, exactly. calceteiros.
4: Calçada is the name of the, the, the pavement, and calceteiros is the name of the people who that were?
0: Cristina, when, <laughs> when I look at you smile as you talk about the sidewalk mosaics, I just am reminded of the, of the pride and the joy that people in Portugal <laughs> have in their unique way of yes. embracing life. Now, it's
4: we, beautiful we, with the waves nearby the river. Yes. Yeah, it does are, make waves, waves, doesn't it? Yes.
0: Now, we're talking about uh, sort of the rough edges of Lisbon, but also there was a time when Lisbon was the superpower and you have this great heritage of Vasco da Gama and Magellan and so on. If you want to experience sort of the grandeur of Lisbon in its glory days, where do you go?
3: Definitely go out to the suburb of Belém. Uh, It is actually uh, not in the city center, but it's a... B-E-L-E-M. Belém. It is the word for Bethlehem in Portuguese. And if you take a 45-minute train ride uh, out west toward the direction of the Atlantic, you end up in the neighborhood of Belém, which is very ritzy and very fancy and very beautiful, and some of the main sites there, especially the, uh, the Hieronymus Monastery.
0: You will see pre-1755 uh, architecture here?
3: Yes, you can, because the monastery survived the earthquake.
0: And this is Manuelan-style architecture. Why is it called Manuelan?
4: Because the king at the time wear the name Manuel. So he was the king during this kingdom. But Vasco da Gama arrives to India, when we arrived to India, we saw things never seen in Europe. I mean, we didn't see only Gothic and Renaissance. Right now we were seeing so many brand new things. So we were astonished with all this. So for us, there was no major artistic um, taste bigger than the other. It was just a mix because they were all together beautiful.
0: So the money that fueled the the power and, and the affluence of Portugal in this day came from far away, and they brought these influence into Portugal that were new to Europe and this celebratory son of Gothic flamboyant style, Manuelin, featured all of the exotic plants and yeah. all and of the was, imagery
3: yes. from everything that they found in the
0: discoveries, carved into the stone, carved into the into stone. In this great monastery,
4: great monastery, great tower of Belém, Belém tower.
0: So, if you you have to go out to Belém, forty-five minutes away from downtown Lisbon, to see the great monastery, to see the tower of Belém, and the monument to this discoveries that celebrates Henry the Navigator and and all those guys. What's another highlight of your visit
4: out to Belém? Mm, after seeing all these beautiful things, of course, that your stomach starts to, well, to killing you. They want to be feed. And there is this marvelous pastry custard cake that is unique.
3: Custard cake. Pastel de Belém.
0: The, the pastry of
3: Belém. The pastry of Belém. <laughs> oh. it, is, it is excellent. It's a custard cake with a, a puff pastry shell with a little bit of powdered sugar and cinnamon on top.
0: I've been there. All of us are just grinning right now. I mean, it's called pastel de nata around Portugal, right? Yes. But in Belém, that's sort of the, the heartland of this great pastry. It's
3: it's basically a secret recipe that three people know, and uh, hopefully none of them pass away anytime soon. <laughs> three people know <laughs> this, people know this <laughs> recipe. And you can visit <laughs> the actual
0: bakery there when you go.
4: Exactly. Actually, you can see they have an open bakery. They have the part of the kitchen. They have a huge window. So you can see all parts of the process in uh, doing it which is fascinating, and this is the not, quantity.
0: This is not a tourist trap. This is where local people go to get oh, their fix. Everyone, everyone. <laughs> loves it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Lisbon, and I'm joined by Christina Duarte and Roberto Wright talking about the city they know and love and call home. And Donna's on the line in Helena, Montana. Donna, what do you think about Lisbon?
5: I think Lisbon is one of the greatest cities I've ever traveled in it. And it seems like Lisbon was the best for me because the people there are so kind and so friendly. And do you speak Portuguese, Rick? No, I don't. It's a tough language.
0: It sure is to me.
5: It, it almost sounds like uh, Russian to me. Yeah. So what I would do would, if I use the buses and those wild little tram cable car things, you know, the one that goes up to the castle? You have about two inches from the side of the buildings when they're going around. Those are such a hoot. But the, the most part, I would use the buses, and I would get on the bus and walk up to a person, usually an older woman who I knew was a local, usually had a string bag or something, and I'd point to my destination in your book. And she'd nod, and then I'd sit down next to her, and then she would tell me which time to get off the bus. And then, if I was going farther than they were going, they'd pass me off to somebody else.
0: Oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't abandon you. They'd leave you in the hands never, of another local. That is so Lisbon.
5: They would never abandon me. They, they would talk in Portuguese to whomever else was on the bus, and they'd be pointing to me, and I'd hear the name of the place I was going. And then the, the person would say, oh, okay, sure. And then they'd usually come and sit by me, and then, then they'd, they'd kind of push me off. Okay, this is where you get off. <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just such a lovely, kind, gentle thing. In fact, my biggest run was three, three passes.
0: That's I a think- great idea. So say you're going as far as you can on the bus or the trolley. Sit next to somebody. Let them know you're going there. They're invariably getting off in two stops, and they'll turn you over to the next person. <laughs> Christina does that work for you It's
4: great is it's completely right like that and you know it's um it's something it reminds me something of uh, that happened to myself also in uh, in Italy and uh, I end up be seated also side of a person and I uh, I was doing the same I mean uh, asking so people take care some of you. directions You know I think and locals actually, are
0: impressed when a tourist a traveler will take exactly. public transport But this
4: happened to me in Italy and what happened is that this lady realizing that I was not Italian she asked me where I was coming from And I said, from Portugal. And she actually rose up and accompanied me to the Duomo, to the cathedral, because she told me that she was treated that way in Portugal. And for that, I mean, is an image. And
3: I think Donna's comment really um, emphasizes it is a big city. Lisbon is a very big city, but it has a very small town character. It's very navigable, and people treat you
0: like a human being. You're not just one of millions of people. And as a traveler, you've got to have the initiative that Donna has to get onto the trolleys and get onto the buses, get away from the tour buses, and actually sit next to a local person and and find an excuse to start up a conversation. I think Americans are really good at being casual and informal and meeting people, and we should take advantage of that because when you connect with a person in Lisbon, you've got yourself a a friend and a a little insight into that town. Donna, tell us more about the the tram rides. I just love riding those trams around the town.
5: I used to like to sit close to the driver as I could, because I enjoyed the interaction. You could tell the people that were regulars, and then you could tell the people that weren't.
0: I think of those trams as sort of sightseeing experiences in themselves. It's a checklist mm-hmm. right next to the museums is ride the tram all the way to the end, and then back.
4: Uh, actually, it reminds me of something that normally happens. In Lisbon, we, as you can remember, we also have uh, lifts, elevators, cable cars that go up the hill. And uh, it happens that they do just uh, one way up, one way down. These drivers, they know the people, the locals, they do an extra stop in the middle of the hill. Exactly, to let them out. Or oh, to let
0: the, the, exactly. uh, the person who doesn't maybe is too old to comfortably hike exactly. up the hill right off in front of their apartment. That's a beautiful thing. Donna, thanks for your call.
5: It's been my pleasure, Rick. Happy travels. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Garrett's on the line in Chicago. Garrett, thanks for your call.
9: Oh, hi everyone. Hi. Um, it's been ten years since I visited Lisbon, and the city, like you were talking about earlier, has an incredibly scenic setting. It left a very strong impression on me, and I think one of the best places to see, you know, a panorama of the city would be at the St. George's Castle. I was there like around sunset, and the view from there is just amazing. My question was, you know, in ten years since I visited Lisbon, I'm just curious to see how much the city has changed and whether it's still. relatively a bargain compared to the other cities in western europe
0: before we let uh, Christine and Robert talk about that, I want to just take this viewpoint you're talking about a little further. You're up on what was the castle in the birthplace of Lisbon, surrounded by huge cannon reminding you of the, uh, the hard-fought past, and you're looking out and you see a, a San Francisco Golden Gate-type bridge that's going across the Tagus River, and you're sitting surrounded yeah. by all these characteristic trolley cars and the seven hills. It's a lot of that sort of San Francisco kind of seafaring sort of charm and everything, and then you've got, of course, all around you these opportunities to sightsee, your question was, how has it changed in the last ten years?
9: Yeah, how has the city changed in the last ten years? I understand they hosted like the European soccer finals or the cups, and I'm just wondering if it's Lisbon is still, you know, relatively a bargain compared to other cities in Western Europe.
4: The city has changed definitely. I would say, like native, I would risk to say, to the better. Uh, It's not so much chaotic. I mean, uh, the central squares, they are much more preserved right now. They are not so chaotic on traffic. They used to be like great parking areas. We right now respect more the the citizens, like uh, walking people, like enjoying, and not so much the cars, the cars passing.
0: And uh, 15 years ago, when I think of Avenue Liberdade, I think of prostitutes hanging out. Yes. I mean, it was like litter- It was like hundreds of prostitutes, and now it's completely gone, I think.
3: Now it's fancy shopping, and, and all of the high-end stores are on the same avenue. That's a big change in 10
4: years. And uh, Commerce Square, the trade square that is beautiful, open to the river mouth, it was a huge parking place, and uh, now as they close it to the traffic, well, they used uh, to do some summer kind of concerts and these kind of temporary terraces.
3: Gary, did you ride the metro, the subway, while you were in Lisbon?
9: Yes, I did. And I was really amazed at how cheap they were. (laughs)
3: Uh, Yeah, it it still is very uh, affordable to take the subway, and it's one of the best ways to see the city. And uh, you would be surprised at the extensions they've done to the subway system because Mm. uh, you can actually get to all of the train stations now by subway. They've got construction going on at the present, extending other lines. So Uh uh, it has changed quite a bit.
0: And that used to be a very frustrating thing to come into town on one train station and how the heck do I get Mm -hmm. to the other one, you know?
4: And you were talking about soccer. Well, I I just live nearby one of the biggest uh, soccer stadiums that were built exactly for the European Cup in two thousand four, yeah, wow. and uh, they are <laughs> they are like cathedrals. <laughs> <laughs> they are amazingly good. There is also a way of traveling, which is these soccer the soccer stadiums, because for the first time for the European Cup, you actually had. Great architects doing these kind of things, not just the engineering companies, but real great architects. So you can do, like, a tour of the best soccer stadiums. they beautiful stadium stadiums. Cathedral. Beautiful. beautiful. Wow. All right. Wow.
9: Garrett, well, you definitely of... gave me enough reason to plan a trip back.
0: <laughs> Garrett, it's been 10 years. You're overdue for a trip to Lisbon. Thanks for your call.
9: <laughs> yes, thank you, Rick. Okay. Obrigado. 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 Bye-bye.
0: We've been talking about Portugal. We've been enjoying the magic of a country a lot of people don't even seriously consider when they're planning their trip to Europe. We've been joined by Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright. Cristina, it's such a joy to just reminisce about Lisbon, such an underrated city, and our, our callers uh, sort of uh, affirm that idea that <laughs> yeah. when you know Lisbon, you love Lisbon. Roberto, if I, uh, you have a guest visiting you, what one experience would you make sure they have?
3: Definitely going up to the Bairro Alto, which is just up from the Baixa, the lower part of the city, and there's a wonderful hotel there that has a terrace rooftop bar. Sit there with a glass of Vino Verde and watch the sunset go down over the city. I can't think of a better experience to have.
0: I'm there. Christina, how about you?
4: I, I'm a kind of, I like smells. I think that is one of the things that remain. Is not only on the eye. It's, it really is fulfilling. I normally go in a walking, and I really put people inside of uh, shops with smells like coffee, like a uh, shoe polish, uh, chestnuts uh, roasted in the streets, or when you are going through a little alley and you have the uh, the, the, the 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 laundry, the, the laundry. Yeah. You have that that smell that is unique. Or you, we were talking about Alfama. Well, try to pass there around eleven thirty when they start cooking lunch and the soup. So you have the smell of the soup starting. You almost can recognize what they are going to have for lunch. <laughs>
0: Beautiful way to be a traveler in the capital of Portugal, Lisbon. Cristina Duarte and Roberto Wright, obrigado. 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 Yo. <laughs> Wherever you go, write us a haiku poem about the inspiration and surprises you found in your travels. Details about sending us a haiku to be read on the air are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here's what some other listeners are writing about their travels.
8: Carolyn Chase hears travel with Rick Steves on KPBS San Diego. She sends us a haiku she calls San Dieku. Red winter fragrance, breathtaking roses in bloom in January. Fran Ferrante of Sebastopol, California, describes the scene she found upriver from New York City in Poughkeepsie on the Hudson. Gray skies light drizzle, did not obscure the beauty, wedding, river, joy. And Doug Ferry of Kirkland, Washington, discovered the secret of a Northern California town. Palindromic Town, Mendocino County Seat, Ukiah Haiku.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks for production help today go to Sarah McCormick and to our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut.
2: I'm Tim Tatton, and I produce each week's show. Come back next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
3: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe.
0: To learn more about Rick's books for Iberia and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.